Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, Today I have Amy D. Waterman. She's a professor and director of the Transplant Research and Education Center at UCLA. So Amy, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So are you a clinician and researcher, pure researcher? Like, what what do you do? Yeah, I'm a psychologist, uh, but my expertise is on behavior change, helping patients to do the healthy things we want them to do. And I design education. I test things, different, you know, innovations. Does, you know, does technology help a patient? Does education help a patient? How do we work with providers more effectively so that, you know, basically all the good things that are possible for a patient, we can get to those. Oh, nice. Okay. So uh, when a doctor gives a treatment plan to a patient, um, you're specifically looking at people that have what uh, treatment plans around diabetes or kidney disease or mm-hmm. what? yeah. So I'm I'm I work at the UCLA Transplant Center. So mostly the patients that uh, get the work that I do, it, they're people, they're patients or they're family members that have come forward to think about would I would I be interested in a transplant, and then for family members, would I ever be interested in donating to to this person? So it's interesting. It's like a whole family dialogue about the opportunity for transplant. How do you find kidneys? How do people get a transplant and have it be so successful that they don't need one for a very long time? Yeah. So you deal with both pre and post transplant and the psychological dynamics of it? Mm-hmm. Yes. All, okay. I study all sorts of things. So, all right. Um, in order to get a kidney transplant, uh, does it have to come from a family member or are there are strangers that can be similar enough, you know, HLA wise and everything that they could be transplant candidates? Yeah. So, okay. So if you come into a center, uh, they basically say, are you interested in getting um, a kidney from someone else to replace the kidney, the two kidneys that you have that aren't working? And so you can get a kidney from someone who passes away. You can get on a waiting list and you can wait for someone who matches you to, uh, to uh, pass away and donate. You can have a family member or a friend donate to you. So you don't have to have a biological relative, but it's really someone who says, I'm willing to step forward and offer one of my kidneys for you. There are also people who step forward that want to do good in general. They're called non-directed donors and they don't even know you, but they're here to do good for the public and they step forward and offer. And so it's really amazing. There's over 6,000 people who donate a kidney while they're alive every year. And a lot of times people don't know that. Yeah, that's amazing. What's the need for kidneys in the U.S. and what's the supply? Sure. So there's almost 100,000 people are waiting on the waiting list right now. And every year about 20,000 people donate uh, one or two kidneys. The people who pass away donate two kidneys. The people who are alive donate one. So we never quite overcome the, the kidney donor shortage, unfortunately. So we're always looking for ways to find more people that would say, hey, I think it it's true for me to offer my kidney for someone that I care about, or hey, I'm a I see the, the need in our society for the greater good, and I'll do it. When people get a kidney transplant, are you taking out one of their kidneys and putting a new one in, or are you just adding a kidney? 
Yeah, they leave the two kidneys that don't work in. So I don't know if everyone who's listening knows where your kidneys are, but they're in the back, in your back. So if you put two fists and you touched your back, your lower back, that's where they are uh, behind your rib cage. So what happens in a kidney transplant is that they actually um, take the kidney out of uh, someone else and then they uh, go in through the front usually and um, add the kidney to your uh, and connect it to your bladder. So you have two kidneys that don't work and a kidney that does. Uh, connected to your bladder. Well, when people, um, you know, get to the point where they need a transplant, do they have any kidney function or is there a reduced set of functions? Yeah. Well, what happens, so kidneys, it's amazing. We all have an abundance of kidney function is the first thing to know. That would be why someone could donate one of their kidneys and still be okay themselves. So basically it only takes uh, 20% of kidney function to uh, be fine. You don't need a kidney transplant, you you only have 20% of your normal 100%, but you're still doing fine. It's when you drop below that, that your kidneys become very problematic and you need to have some kind of renal replacement therapy that could be dialysis or transplant. So uh, what happens when, in, you know, I would recommend to anybody who's listening, if you're concerned that you might have kidney problems, just like you go and you check your blood sugars and your blood pressure, you can also have a urine test that checks how well your kidneys are functioning. And you can monitor that over the time, over time in the same way you do, you know, your normal other things. And so you might see that over time, your kidney function got a little bit worse, totally fine. Like life, as people age, you lose a little bit of kidney function. The only people that need to be really concerned are people that when they go for that kind of test, they see that they have kidney function below 20%. And then what happens is the doctors are like, okay, you're, this is not enough to be filtering the, your blood and to be getting rid of the various poisons that are in your body so that you're healthy. And then they look for other options. Well, plumbing wise, how is the third kidney plumbed in? And uh, do you care if you just, you know, cauterize off the existing kidneys or do they still need to be connected? Well, usually by the time that the, the kidneys usually get smaller after you have a kidney that's working, it's interesting. They kind of die, sort of to say in a simple way. Um, but what happens is they sew the ureter uh, of the, the new kidney to the bladder. So that's uh, how the plumbing works. So it's an interesting question. You, are, you must be biologically inclined to ask that. Oh, yeah. I mean, so, so if someone has a kidney disease, does it manifest equally in both or does it manifest in one and then? You know, like you said, there's the other one, then the one that's doing poorly, does it tend to shrink? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, such a great question. Such a normal one, too. It'd be great if we had all this kidney function and you almost had like a backup kidney, right? So you'd have one kidney that's doing all the heavy lifting. But if that one started, you know, getting damaged, then the other one would kick in. It doesn't work like that. They both work or they both have problems. So that's the normal way that that it happens. So if um, people who are having kidney function loss are having problems in both kidneys. Well, what happens to the adrenal glands? I thought they sit on top of the kidneys. So if like one shrinks, does it pull the adrenal gland out of place or does it uh, affect the adrenal gland? That's, uh, it's a great know? question. I don't know the answer to that, actually. You have to bring in a doctor to ask, but it's an interesting question. Are there any other structures that are intimately tied into the kidney or their you know, their ligaments connecting it to other structures that are affected? No, like, no, if they couldn't. They couldn't take a kidney out of somebody, you know, a healthy person, if they couldn't detach it without harm, right? So they have to go and they search for all the key veins and all the key arteries that are that are creating blood flow, and they tie all of those off, and then they can remove the kidney from uh, like a donor. 
So no, it's, it's able to be removed without harming the whole plumbing and the whole system of somebody. Okay. So now in terms of the uh, emotional issues, what's important to know about that? Are people just, are they just living in a state of fear or despair when they have kidney disease? Um, you know, when they're on the transplant list, what, what happens to them mentally? Yeah. So, well, there's, so imagine, so a lot of times what people are doing is they're finding out that they have kidney problems and then they're going to their doctors. And I'd recommend this, their community nephrologists, their kidney doctors, and they manage their kidney function with medication, with diet limit changes, those kind of things so that the kidney isn't damaged further so that they prevent their kidneys from failing entirely. So there's lots of people doing that right now and it works and they live a whole life uh, and they don't ever uh, need a kidney transplant or go on dialysis. There are people though that those interventions don't work. And then what they have to do is to decide, okay, what do, how do I wanna have a substitute for the facts that my own kidneys aren't gonna work? So they have to decide, well, do I wanna go on dialysis? And they have to decide, do I wanna go in a center? Um, which as you know, right now, um, you know, like with COVID people don't want to get any disease. They have to decide whether they want to do dialysis at home where the machine filters their blood at home. There's peritoneal dialysis, which is, uh, is a different kind of uh, dialysis where um, your, your blood is filtered. There's an, through your abdomen. So it's like, there's all these interesting options of dialysis. And I always say dialysis is great because you can get it immediately if you need it. Um, so for people start that often and I'm glad to have it as a person who works in the kidney field, because if you needed a liver transplant, there isn't a substitute liver, but we have dialysis that can really uh, do a good job. It, but the big challenge is it doesn't do as well as a kidney that's working all the time. So what I often recommend why I think, uh, people considering transplant are, it's so important is that people who um, can get a transplant, they can have 50 to 85% of normal kidneys with just one kidney. So that's what I would want. If I, if my two kidneys stopped working, I'd want to try to replace it with the most kidney function possible. So what happens when they come to our center is we talk to them a lot about, okay, we want to get you on the waiting list. We want to see if anybody in your community would be interested in donating to you. And we, um, we want to, um, really help you make an informed choice that this is the right thing for you. So that's where uh, 100,000 people have decided that we'd really like a transplant if we could get one and they join the waiting list. And then at the same time, they might be talking to their friends and family as well. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Well, what are some of the upsides and downsides of a transplant? Why is it not just like, oh yeah, definitely I want one. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So uh, let me think, you know, if you and I were having this conversation, uh, what would you want to be on dialysis or get a transplant? Do you know yet or you don't yet know? Well, I know dialysis, you, know, you have to go there like three days a week, for like four hours a time. So it's a huge chunk of time. Yep. Then there's the stats, like, you know, I guess people on dialysis only last, five years on average, but 
kidney transplant, they last a lot longer. But then again, with kidney transplant, you have to be immunosuppressed the rest of your life. So that's also a scary thing too. Yep. So what I would say right now is you're saying it so well, you're very informed. Um, The key is dialysis is life-saving, but it's hard on your body long-term. People can have um, health um, outcomes. They can have heart attacks from being on dialysis. They're very limited in what they can eat and how much they can travel. It's more complex to travel. So there's all of the quality of life things that are hard. And so, um, you know, talking about emotion, emotionally being stressed out, you know, if you have to go and deal with your treatment every other day, that's hard, right? It's stressful. It's upsetting. You don't feel that good. So um, although I'm grateful for it, the thought would be, let's use this as an interim solution as much as possible. And then let's look for a transplant. Now with a transplant, you have to be healthy enough that you can go through a surgery and recover and be okay. So there's some people that, that they, they're just not at that point physically. Uh, it, 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 they do a full evalu- evaluation to know. Um, some people are uncomfortable talking to their loved ones about the option of being a donor for them. Uh, you know, they, they don't want to harm anybody. They're concerned about that. Um, the point about immunosuppressants is true. Uh, it could One of the big outcomes that could happen, the negative outcomes after you get a transplant, is you're at a higher risk of things like post-transplant cancer. So you could have the most common one is skin cancer because you basically, your body now is uh, immunosuppressants. They lower your body's resistance to external things. So imagine the kidney goes in your body and then now your body could see it as a, like an, like a virus and try to fight it all the time. So the immunosuppressant drugs help prevent the, your body from rejecting that kidney, which is a good thing if you need it. But the bad side is that your body can't fight off other things too. So there's a lot that has to be done with post-transplant cancer monitoring and management. It doesn't happen to everybody. It's just something that's like now part of a potential. A lot of people tell me though, they'd rather monitor that and have the freedom and the um, ability to eat what they want and the ability to travel and to feel good, not be always going to medical appointments. So they're okay with that. But it's a game of, I'm not here to say what's right or wrong for anybody. And I think people have to know the risks and the benefits and decide for themselves. When when people get a transplant, do they live normal lifespans or they still live a shortened lifespan and why? Uh, well, uh, people who get transplants have to be healthy enough that it would benefit them. They are often facing, you know, multiple health. Challenges, so it depends who you compare them to. What I would say is if you had, if you were facing kidney disease and, and often uh, diabetes and hypertension, uh, which are the causes of kidney disease, Uh, you're somebody who's facing health challenges. So you'd have to be comparing the transplant people against other people that are facing those health challenges. And transplant people do live the longest. So if this is my mom, I would want her to really seriously consider a transplant. I also say the big recommendation is to get a transplant as close to your own uh, kidneys failing as possible. So the people who live the longest are people who can have their own kidneys and then they're figuring out who their living donor is going to be. And then they have a living donor transplant right at the point where their own kidneys fail and they never go on dialysis at all. They live the longest. They do the best. Hmm. Um, emotionally, when people, uh, you know, they first are told that they have, you know, chronic kidney disease and they need dialysis, um, you know, what are some of the important issues there? Do they feel like they're doomed? Does it, does mm-hmm. it, you know, how long does it take them to get used to it mentally on, you know, I guess mm-hmm. their new condition? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah. So if, so if they, they just find out they have chronic kidney disease, period. 
Yeah, well, is that what you mean? Th- mm-hmm. There and then, what's the next emotional milestone? Like, oh, all right, you're going to need dialysis, and then. Uh, well, the, the key, right. So chronic kidney disease has five stages. So people who are in stages one through three uh, have a lot that they can do to prevent it from progressing. And so the key to me is, okay, just like when you find out you have blood pressure, you know, your high blood pressure, or you, you know, you're pre-diabetic, there are things you can do uh, to make sure this doesn't cause serious damage. So what we do is uh, kidney uh, professionals is we try to really make sure patients are doing the right things and they're taking medication to manage their blood pressure or their diabetes, that they are, um, that they're regulating their diet so that their kidneys aren't damaged uh, any further due to diet. So there's things people can do. Um, and so all of that often is successful. And then you just manage this along with the other things you're biologically wired to have. Now, then there are people who, as they go to their doctors, they notice they have less and less kidney function each time. Those are people that have to make a decision of if their kidneys did fail, what would they want to do? And emotionally, um, that's scary for people. You know, it's understandable. It's a very, um, people have said, you know, like, wait, I'm kind of relying on my kidneys to survive here and they're, they're not coming through for me. And they have to face, you know, the upset that their own kidneys are not working. They have to face a lot of new choices medically and adjust to them. So, you know, our job as a healthcare team is to be really with you in the transition and to create the new normal for you where, um, where people are, you know, have, they're on dialysis and they're doing okay. They're looking for a transplant. Um, they have a dialysis option that is, allows them the most convenience for the, for the person so they can live the life and do what's important to them. So, you know, that's kind of where a lot of good people are stepping in to try to help. So it, is it emotionally stressful? Yes, in many different ways. Uh, and so, you know, we just want to help people be as strategic as possible to have the best quality of life and the most freedom and the most health. Um, what are some of the issues that uh, you've learned about are important that, you know, the average person would never think would come up? Surprising things that, that come mm-hmm. up. Yeah. So the the thing I'd say, actually, uh, let me tell you about why I got passionate about this field. So I was a young 20 something and in graduate school and people, my my study that I was asked to do was to call people who had donated kidneys to see if they regretted their decisions. So this was, yeah. So imagine I'm getting on the phone and I call the first person and I, I ask them every worst case scenario, right? Like, did you, do, are you still friends with the person you donated the kidney to? Uh, did you lose any money? Do you have health insurance still? Did it screw up your life insurance? Like I was like bad news police, right? Yeah, right. And, and the thing that was interesting and I was really young and didn't know who living donors were. Um, they would say, in general, the research we did and a lot of other people's research said that the bad news things very rarely happen. That's the first truth of it. But the thing that was shocking and revealing to me was that they started sharing about how meaningful this was for them and how um, how this was one of the most profound things equivalent for women of giving birth because they were giving life. For other people, they said they just, to see their loved one return to health, return to energy, have you know more freedom, and to know that they did this, it was so meaningful. So I had this really rare uh, moment of talking to over 200 of the best people that I'd ever met, <laughs> one after the other. I don't know how you feel about this podcast, but it was like the, a podcast of 200 great people. And yeah, 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 totally. And the thing that they said was, 
we don't regret it at all. We're, we didn't have the worst case scenario things happen, but we did need more information. And would you uh, be willing to make sure that, that the donors have what they need to make informed choices? And, and they, um, they started me on a path really because I said, I'd be happy to answer the questions that you don't get answered. And I kind of designed a one color brochure, you know, out of my love for living donors. And then what I want to say is 20 years later, I actually spoke at President Obama's White House to say that everybody deserves equal access to transplant. And the education's now, you know, nationwide of the kind of work that I do. So I really feel that the goodness of living donors uh, is so beautiful. And I think a lot of times people don't have a chance to meet people who have donated before. Have you ever met a living donor yourself? No. Yeah. Yeah. It's common. Even though there's 6,000 people a year, you know, when you meet somebody who's donated a kidney, they, they don't talk about it all the time. It's not, not like you'd know. Right. So, exactly. yeah. yeah. That's actually why I started the Living Donation Storytelling Project. Um, have you heard about that at all? No. What's it about? Cool. Um, so basically the thought was I was touched and moved by these stories and mostly people don't get a chance to meet living donors. So mm. what if we could create a digital online library where we could have people that are living donors uh, from their cell phones just tell their own stories and they could um, they could share whatever they wanted. So we I created this technology uh, with a colleague, a uh, friend, and we allow this uh, portal basically where someone right now can go to explorelivingdonation.org and they can say, I'm going to tell my story and, and kind of share and pay it forward. So living donors tell their story. People who've received living donor transplants tell their story. Also people in need tell their stories. And you can send these stories to, uh, like if you needed a kidney, you could say, hi, I'm in need of a kidney. If you'd consider donating and you could actually post that to Facebook, which is amazing. But it's also very educational in nature where it's like, if you want to meet 150 of them now, you can just go to explore living donation and like hear pieces of their stories. And they're, they're they're authentic. They're, they're funny. They're sad. Um, They're, they talk about all the things that uh, living donors talk about. And the whole idea is if anyone would ever consider doing that, this it's helpful to have a public resource to go to just hear the straight story. So it's explorelivingdonation.com? That org. That org, sorry. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. ExploreLivingDonation.org. Yeah. Okay. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Um, well, I guess going back to less emotional issues, what, so when you, it, in order to be put on the transplant list, <clears throat> what do you have to do? And then to stay on that list, what do you have to do? And do you move up and down in terms of priority? Mm-hmm. Okay, so what happens if you're interested in getting on the waiting list is you show up at a transplant center, you tell if and you you'd say I'd like to undergo evaluation to see if I'm healthy enough that I don't that a transplant would help me and not hurt me and that it doesn't um it doesn't in any way affect me financially, psychologically. So they do a whole span of different kinds of uh, medical, psychosocial and an economic evaluation and insurance review to make sure that transplant's a good fit for you. And if it is, then they can put you on the waiting list. And what happens there is you're waiting for somebody that matches you of your blood type and who, as you said, um, your the antibodies um, to them match you. So 
Uh, it depends where you live in the country, how long your wait is and what your blood type is. So people are waiting between um, a couple years to up to 10 years. If you're in California right now, if you're an O blood type, you wait almost 10 years on the waiting list, which is really unfortunate. I know. So that's why I say get on the waiting list because, you know, you never know. But then also look at other uh, shorter uh, time frame people in your community, you know, whether it's your family, your friends, your church community, community you know, that kind of thing. And I see a lot of patients doing that while they wait. Oh, but um, again, what criteria, like medically, do you have to have a certain diet or demonstrate certain markers or levels of things in order to be on the list or stay on it? There's only two permanent rule outs for transplant. Uh, one is that you have a serious kind of cancer and that you have heart disease. Those two, they probably aren't going to allow you to be a transplant uh, candidate for a, uh, and put you on the wait list. Everything else depends on your health and you have to go in and have like a series of, you know, a couple days of testing. So I can't speak to like, you know, the people who definitely get in or not, but different transplant centers are, you know, kind of assessing all of the different things to make sure it's safe. And so when you make it through, it's a big accomplishment and you get waitlisted and that's a great thing. Then you might, then you wait every year and you make sure that you're, you know, you're healthy. And then uh, as you get closer to the top of the list, you know, when your number comes up, so to speak, they bring you back in, they get you ready for your transplant. And then you have a really good day where someone calls you and says, oh my gosh, you know, you've been waiting for one year to many years. We have great news. Bring your suitcase. Your life's about to change. Oh, well, uh, how much of a, when someone gets the call, like how fast does it happen? Well, for deceased, because the waiting list is for people who've passed away, they they need to get uh, the kidney into you as fast as possible. So usually within 48 hours. Oh, wow. My God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you get this call. It's like well, when, you, when you're at the top of the list so that, you know, for a while you're just on the list and then all of a sudden the transplant center starts saying, okay, Amy, you need to stay nearby and, you know, you need to give us your number, you know, just in case you go on a vacation because, you know, we never know. Uh, they, they usually bring in two people because um, of just in case one of the patients is like not is ill that day, for example, and shouldn't, they don't want to waste the kidney that's come available. So they kind of have a backup person and a, and a first person. And so one of the, we hope that one of the two people are going to get the kidney and then um, the person, then the kidneys uh, flown in or driven in. And then, um, then there's a surgery that happens very quickly. Transplant surgeons are amazing people. They do transplants in the middle of the night. You know, they whenever kidneys are available, they come in to do them. So I really give them a lot of credit for doing what it takes to help people be healthy. Because when the kidney's there, the kidney's there, right? Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, when someone passes, so I guess they're donating to two people, you know, inadvertently. They don't give both kidneys to one person, right? Right. You only need one. So, so yeah, what'll happen, that's what they'll say about 20,000 kidneys are donated every year. And it's like uh, the people who pass away give two and the people who don't, are alive when they donate give one. So that's how you, you know, all of those kidneys come from a lot of good people, but less than 20,000 for sure. Does anyone ever get a double kidney transplant? There's usually no need, uh, you know, so... The key is you only need one kidney. Remember how you only need 20% of kidney function to uh, be okay? 25%. Right. So the key is you, if you, uh, one kidney is 50 to 85%. So with all of, with a hundred thousand people, we need one and, you know, for as many as people as we can. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Every, yeah. One thing I'd say to your audience is people always say, you know, what I, when you go to the DMV and they ask you if you'd ever be a donor, uh, you know, I'm really clear and can say to you, like, I've seen people whose lives have been changed in a day because of the generosity of someone who says yes there. 
So think about that because it's, um, you know, for it's sometimes just something you think about offhandedly at the DMV. And what I can tell you is there are people who are alive because of those gifts and, and I see them and they're so grateful. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I guess the only fear there, you know, is if you were, you're dying, they wouldn't save you because they wanted your organs, but that's probably yep. well. No, it's a it's a thing that people are you know talk about, and is this true? And so, how they try to make sure that that everything is above board at all times is they have your medical care team is never is not involved with the donation at all. They just try to save you. At, but if there's a chance that you're going to pass away, a second team comes in. Uh, kind of to do something neutrally and only when uh, brain death and, and death has been determined is that team um, called in to, to do what your wishes are. The, what you say on the, on, at the DMV is like a legal document of what you want your wishes to be. So they try to honor those in the case where you pass away. So, but the teams aren't the same. So you don't have to worry that your team is not trying to save you to the, you know, in a hundred percent of the ways that they can. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, with what you know, is there new stuff on the horizon that's going to make a big difference, a big improvement to uh, reducing the waiting list or making the process work better? Mm -hmm. Well, people are trying to have an innovation and I, I, I cheerlead for them. They talked about 3D printing kidneys. Could you just make a kidney? And um, so people are looking into that. Uh, people are talking about, could you, um, you know, use valves or different things from pigs, you know, xenotransplantation. So I've heard about these things for years. I've never heard that one of them is gaining steam over uh, people donating to each other yet. So uh, let's hope, but I've not heard that there's an innovation that that is trumping good human generosity as of yet. Well, very good, Amy. What's the best way for people to find out more about your work? What are some resources for them? So if they want to know more about what I do, I'd recommend they go to exploretransplant.org or explorelivingdonation.org. Uh, that's a place where there's neutral information about transplant and can it can also refer people to different resources that are out there. Um, we I also have, uh, if you want to know just what it's like to be a patient, a, a patient going through evaluation, there's a resource that I have that's really fun that people like called My Transplant Coach. And they, um, a little animated characters basically show up at a transplant center and they move through the process of getting evaluated from beginning to end and see like which, which treatments would help them live the longest. And so if that's your cup of tea, do that. Definitely hear some stories on um, Explore Living Donation about why people do this generous thing. And, you know, if there's anyone facing this in their life, I just want to say I wish them well. And uh, there's a lot of good people in transplant and in kidney care that uh, are here to help. Very good, Amy. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.